It's great to be back here. It's been a couple of years. We all know why it's been a couple of years, right? But uh, actually, you guys have been standing with the ministry of Jews for Jesus for 30 years. Been partnering with us as a ministry. I've been leading Jews for Jesus for 25 years. How many of you were around when Moish Rosen spoke here? Yeah, there's still some folks. Moish is with the Lord now, and uh, it's hard to believe I've been leading Jews for Jesus for longer than he did. But uh, you guys have been with us all that time, and it's wonderful to see so many folks here at Valley. And uh, I've had the opportunity to have lunch with uh, Phil and Carolyn just about uh, four weeks ago at the Dead Fish. So uh, <laughs> it's always wonderful to, to be among friends and family. And I want to thank you for standing with us. You know, the past two years have been a challenge, but for Jews for Jesus, we have actually gone from strength to strength. And that's because of his uh, name. We are relentlessly pursuing God's plan for the salvation of the Jewish people. And since it's God's plan, we know that it cannot fail. Amen? Amen. Since the last time I was here with you, we've continued to grow and expand. Uh, we opened up this past year a branch office in Jerusalem of all places. We never uh, lost sight of, of that place where Jesus died and rose again and where he's coming again in glory. And uh, so the fact that we were able to actually open up a full-time branch or preaching the gospel out on the streets of Jerusalem even now. Isn't that wonderful? Even during this pandemic, God has given us the opportunity to expand. We've been uh, seeing more uh, effective ministry in these last two years than at any other time in the history of Jews for Jesus. It's hard to imagine, but you know what? We know that the gospel is never quarantined, right? And never shelters in place. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is at work. And I want you to be encouraged. I'm going to share just a few things about what God is doing in the ministry of Jews for Jesus. We're at a season of miracles, and we're seeing miracles in Jews for Jesus. You know, one of the uh, things that we do, we have three pillars of ministry that we have in Jews for Jesus. The first one, we're best known for. It's called Go and Tell. You know, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And we're in 13 countries around the world preaching the gospel with a Jewish accent. And everywhere we go, you know, there's as five times as many Gentiles who get saved as Jews. When you preach the gospel loud enough for Jews to hear, a whole lot of other folk listen in. And we're excited for anyone who comes to faith in Christ. But uh, what's really seen an expansion of uh, ministry is in the land of Israel, where the largest number of Jewish people anywhere in the world are now residing. Over 7 million Jewish people in that little part, that little slice of land in, in the Middle East. God is gathering his people back to the land which he promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob so long ago. And now for the first time, more Jews in Israel than in North America. And if the demographic trends continue, uh, pretty soon there'll be more Jews in Israel than outside of Israel. We'll continue to be in the countries where there are large focus of Jewish people and we are going and telling that is handing out gospel tracts being face to face with people when we aren't being shut down by quarantines and such we're out there making his name known and we get face to face with people sometimes that can be heated exchanges because Jewish people are told from 
earliest childhood that if you're Jewish you can't believe in Jesus. So to hear Jews for Jesus to them sounds like vegetarians for meat, you know? It sounds like a contradiction, but we want Jewish people to know that there are other Jews who believe in Jesus. In fact, the most Jewish thing that any Jew can do is to believe in the Messiah of Israel. Amen? So we're continuing to do that ministry. But uh, the second pillar of our evangelistic effort is, is come and see, where we invite people to come to various events. And uh, when the pandemic hit, we began to uh, leverage our online presence so that just, for example, earlier this week, we had a Hanukkah event online. Over 2,000 people attended that event to find out more about how the gospel is revealed in the story of Hanukkah. That's what we're going to talk about here today as well. But uh, one of the most encouraging things that has happened in these last few weeks has been in the, in the country of France, in the city of Paris. Jews for Jesus has long had a branch office there, but a lot of times it's pretty dry and barren. Uh, we just keep on being faithful, proclaiming the gospel, but our leader there, Josh Chernil, had an idea. Because of the rise of anti-Semitism that has led actually to uh, Jewish people being murdered right out on the streets of Paris, we decided to call together a colloquial, that is a gathering of evangelical pastors and leaders along with Jewish leaders in the region around Paris and France in general. And we were able to get them together to speak out against anti-Semitism. And most, this is the first time this has ever happened in the history of France that evangelicals and Jews got together and addressed this subject. And as a result of that, a book was published. That book was just released this month, and we had a regathering of all of those leaders. In that time, God has given us such favor. Jewish leaders, the ambassador uh, to France from Israel, the chief rabbi of Paris, all of these Jewish leaders have come to find out that evangelicals are their best friends and that because Christians love the God of Israel, they love the people of Israel. And they were able to stand against anti-Semitism. This book was released. And since that, we've had favor as Jews for Jesus for putting this thing together. We now cooperate with some local synagogues. We recently had a Hanukkah party where our missionaries were allowed to come into the synagogue and proclaim the gospel to those Jewish people in one of the most influential synagogues in Paris. And that was because some of those Jewish people in France were able to come and see the love of God in the people of God, Jews and Gentiles who love Jesus. The third uh, pillar of our ministry is what we call love and serve. You know, one of the greatest commandments is love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, we didn't really understand how we were going to be able to do that in the way that uh, would meet needs of people most Jewish people, you know, uh, Christians, you tell me, well, my doctor's Jewish, you know. <laughs> so most of the times we, we don't think of Jewish people as needing our, 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 our medical help, our doctors. You know, if you see what Israel's done in the Negev, they've made the Negev to bloom. They don't need our agricultural specialists. What do Jewish people need? They need Jesus. But in the land of Israel, there's a tremendous sense of brokenness. And for the first time in the last few years, Jews for Jesus has begun to minister to the needs of the homeless, the addicted, and the trafficked that are 
in great numbers in the, in the cities of Israel, particularly in Tel Aviv, where our largest branch is. Uh, we actually have over 50 full-time workers now in Jews for Jesus in the land of Israel. And that's the largest ministry to the Jewish people in the land of Israel. And uh, so meeting this need, however, has been a great challenge because, uh, first of all, there's, we haven't had a lot of experience until about 2018 when we started to work in this area. We started uh, soup kitchens in the city of Tel Aviv and people started coming. But then as the pandemic hit, we recognized that this was gonna be a problem and so we approached some of our donors and they were able to provide a food truck for us so that we could actually take the food out onto the streets and reach out to the homeless in that way. And just that ministry has grown so much that during the pandemic, while most Israelis were told stay at home, the municipality of Tel Aviv said, we're gonna give you guys special uh, uh, certificates that you can go around and you can go out and help these people and so we were given authority by the by the government of Israel to preach the gospel and to feed Israelis who were in need isn't that amazing I never thought I'd live to see that day but the government of Israel is so happy that Jews for Jesus is ministering in this way and one of the most exciting areas has been with uh, women who are homeless or trafficked uh, we were able in September to open up the very first respite home for these women. And in Hebrew speaking, these women are brought off the streets where they can get cleaned up and they can learn, uh, they can, many of them get their high school equivalency, and also they can learn about the gospel. They have two Bible studies every day, and we are seeing among this community some of the most broken people recognizing their need. I'll never forget the day I went into a, a halfway house with one of our staff, Egal. Egal is a man who's been on the streets. He's been addicted. He's been in prison, but he has a testimony of the Lord transforming his life. And so Egal and I went to this halfway house where there were both Arabs and Jews there trying to overcome their addiction. We walked in the door. There was a crowd of them. One guy jumped off the couch and pointed at Egal and said, I know you. We were in prison together 10 years ago and you were the meanest guy there. Now look at you. What happened? <laughs> what an introduction, right? Egal got a chance to share his testimony and seven of those people at that halfway house prayed to receive Jesus as their Messiah. <laughs> Hallelujah. So when you pray for Jews for Jesus... Pray for our ministry as we go and tell, as we invite people to come and see, and as we love and serve our neighbors and fulfill the command of Christ through the sharing of the gospel. Jewish people are coming to believe in Jesus in ways that we haven't seen since those first Jews for Jesus, Peter, James, and John, were out preaching the gospel. And I believe this is because we are in the last days, and God said in the last days he would pour out his spirit, not just on all flesh, but particularly on the Jewish people that their eyes, once blinded, would be open, and we're beginning to see the first fruits of that final harvest. Hallelujah. And you know, we are now approaching this amazing uh, celebration of the Lord's birth. I believe that Christmas is a Jewish holiday, or at least it should be, because it's the celebration of the birth of the greatest Jew that ever lived, Jesus the Messiah. And uh, as you may have noticed on the screen, what I'm going to be talking about today is that Christmas would be impossible without Hanukkah. You know, a lot of times uh, 
Christians, not knowing very much about Hanukkah, will say, well, you know, we Christians have Christmas and the Jews have Hanukkah. Well, they go together. They really do. And I want you to understand how Hanukkah really demonstrates the faithfulness of God ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. But you can look throughout all of the Hebrew scriptures and you will not find in the Old Testament any mention of Hanukkah. In fact, the only place that it's mentioned is in the New Testament in the Gospel of John chapter 10 verse 22. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there with me. You know, the reason for the fact that you can't find the festival of Hanukkah in the Older Testament is because Hanukkah is about events that took place in history in that which is called the intertestamental period. That time in history between the ending of the prophets with the prophet Malachi and before the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist in the New Testament. And many have called these years, these couple hundred years, as the silent years because there were no scriptures being written. But they were far from silent. God was at work in a wonderful way, and you're going to see that today. But you know what? We oftentimes think that we're living in silent years, don't we? We look around at what's going on in our world today, and we say, God, what's going on? What, what are you doing? It seems like the heavens are like brass, that, there's, that, that God isn't speaking, but I want to assure you today that God is very much involved. And even when the church is struggling and the numbers are down, God has a plan. He's working it out, and he invites us to believe and to be a part of his plan for all the ages. And that idea, that understanding is reinforced by this story of Hanukkah. Hanukkah occurred at about 165 B.C. And at that time... There was a wicked king, a Syrian, named Antiochus. He called himself Epiphanes. That was his title. You know, like we have Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. It's his title, Jesus the Messiah. Antiochus called himself Epiphanes, which is a Greek word for God manifest. That's a pretty tall claim for someone to make. God manifests. But that's what he called himself, Epiphanes. And the Jewish people did not accept him in that way. They called him Epimenes, which is the Greek word for crazy in the head. And so the Jewish people resisted his efforts to lead them. And so Antiochus took his mighty Syrian army, invaded the land of Israel, and overwhelmed the Jewish people. He forbid the worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He forbade the, the keeping of the Torah and all that went with it, the Jewish festivals. In fact, if Antiochus had had his way, the Jewish people would cease to have been a unique people on the face of the earth. They would have been just like everybody else. He was enforcing Greek religion the Greek pantheon of gods. In fact, one of the worst things that he did was he invaded Jerusalem and overwhelmed the temple and he stopped the worship of God in the temple, set up a whole bunch of idols to Zeus and the other Greek gods and then he sacrificed a pig on the altar knowing that it would defile the altar because it was an unclean animal according to the law of Moses. And the story of Hanukkah is exactly what God did to rescue his people from such a predicament. 
there was a, a, a family known as the Maccabees who lived in Modi'in, which is right outside of the city of Jerusalem. And whereas many of the Jewish people were just kind of caving in to what their government, the Greek government, wanted them to do, this family of the Maccabees stood up and resisted it and began to fight against the Syrian army. And they, they ran off into the hills and began like a guerrilla warfare. And the story of Hanukkah is that though vastly outnumbered, the Maccabees and those who joined them in this guerrilla warfare were ultimately able to defeat the mighty Syrian army to drive them out of the, the city, out of the, the, the country of Israel, and to recapture and rededicate the temple there in Jerusalem. In fact, the word Hanukkah means dedication, referring to this very significant historical event where Israel was able to recapture and rededicate the temple. And that happened, as I said, in the intertestamental period, but Jesus took advantage of this historical event and this place to say some of the most powerful things about himself. And we then are going to pick up and look at that. And reading it, we are reading it in the context of this festival, Hanukkah, which actually just ended this past Monday here in America. We were celebrating it. But John 10, verse 22, it says, At that time... The Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. So dedication, there's that word. And in English, dedication. In Hebrew, Hanukkah. And it was in Jerusalem. And it was winter. That's right. Now is winter. And Jesus, where was he? He was walking in the temple. That's where all of this happened. All that we were celebrating. He chose to be there to take advantage of that. He was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Now remember that because that's going to be important as we get to the end of our conversation today. So the Jews gathered around him. Now when John uses the term the Jews, it raises a question because who else is going to be in the temple, right? But Jewish people. But John is using that phrase, the Jews, in a very unique way. It's not just all Jewish people, but some Jewish people, particularly the Judean leadership. Remember, Jesus' disciples, Jesus himself, were from Galilee up in the north, and there was always tension between Galilee and Judea. And so these Jewish leaders were particularly had their power base in Jerusalem. They were the ones that were most opposed to the ministry of Jesus, and in fact, they were plotting against his life. And the center of that plot was the religious center of the Judean Jewish people, which is the temple. And nevertheless, what do we find? Jesus marching right in there on the Feast of Hanukkah. I'll tell you what, if there was a plot against me and Hercules, I'd find somewhere else to preach today. <laughs> but Jesus, knowing that he's walking in obedience to the plan and purpose of God, knowing that there's a plot against his life, nevertheless walks right up there into Jerusalem, right into the temple, and he's going to have one of the most significant, uh, significant interactions, conflicts, if you will, with these leaders. They say, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, the Messiah the Moshiach, the anointed one, then tell us plainly. Well, what do you think about that? Jesus has something to say. He says, I told you. I told you. 
You don't believe. That's the problem. Not that you haven't heard, but that you don't believe when you're told. The works that I do, and that Greek word also can be translated miracles. This is a season of miracles. I just told you the historical events. They were miraculous. In fact, when we greet one another at this season, Jewish people say to one another, Nes gadol hayasham. Surely a great miracle happened there. Do you believe in miracles today? Well, Jesus is in the temple. He's talking about miracles, not just the one that happened at Hanukkah 165 years earlier, but miracles that he was doing right in their midst. They saw these miracles, and yet they didn't believe. And Jesus is reminding them that God is still doing miracles, and you better pay attention to them. He said, these miracles that I do in my Father's name bear witness of me, but you do not believe. Why? Because you're not part of my flock. A lot of times we think that people don't believe in Jesus just simply because, you know, they haven't had someone who has all the answers yet, you know. They haven't had a good argument. And if we could only bring in some good apologetics, then they're going to believe, right? Well, they had the very Son of God doing miracles in their midst. And they didn't believe. Why? Because God is the one who opens people's minds and hearts. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. But they were not part of his flock. You do not believe because you're not part of my flock. My sheep, Jesus says, hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. It's simple. They belong to him, so they follow him. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. Talk about eternal security. It's right there, right in the text. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then watch out for this one. I and the Father are one. Now there's a lot of people who claim to be, you know, believers in Jesus, but they believe in him as, you know, just a good man. (laughs) Or uh, as maybe a prophet. Uh, but certainly not God. Uh, and they'll say when they look at this, some of these quasi-Christian, supposed Christian cults, you know, that, well, Jesus was only speaking of oneness in terms of purpose with the Father. And I would say that the people who heard him say that knew exactly what he was saying. <laughs> they are in a better position to understand when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, what did he mean? Well, the Jewish leaders picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many miracles from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And they answered, it is not for a miracle that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Wow. They understood exactly what he was saying. And so they picked up stones to stone him. These miracles that Jesus is referring to, I think there are three that come from this text that bring home the story of Hanukkah and demonstrate to us how without Hanukkah, Christmas would have been impossible. Those miracles are, first of all, the miracle of light, second of all, the miracle of preservation, and thirdly, the miracle of Emmanuel. So let's start with, first of all, the miracle of light. When Antiochus invaded the temple, he not only set up altars to Zeus and the other Greek gods, 
but he also extinguished the sacred menorah, the seven-branched candelabra that burned in the temple, in the holy place, demonstrating the eternal presence of God. That light never went out, except Antiochus put it out. And so one of the wonderful things about Hanukkah was that when they recaptured the temple, the first thing they wanted to do was to rekindle that menorah, the seven-branch candelabra, but they found that there was only enough oil for the lamps for one day. And it would take seven more days for fresh oil to be made and sanctified for use in the temple. The dilemma these Jewish leaders, the Maccabees, faced was, should we relight the menorah only to have it go out after one day? Or should we wait and allow the temple to remain in darkness until we make enough oil to keep it going? on an ongoing basis. And what they decided was that they would go ahead and light the menorah anyway. And that oil, enough only for one day, lasted for eight whole days, enough for fresh oil to be made. That's the miracle, and why Hanukkah is also called the Festival of Lights, and why we have this, what we call a Hanukkiah, which is a menorah that's especially for use at the time of this festival. Unlike the menorah and the temple that had seven branches, as you can see, this one actually has nine. Why is that? Well, because we have eight candles, these white ones, that are for the eight nights that we celebrate Hanukkah, the eight days that the oil lasted. And then we have this blue candle that's lifted up above the others. That's called the shamash, or the servant candle. And we use that light to light all the others. So I'm going to show you how it's done, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the festival of lights and the menorah. First of all, we say the blessing over the first candle. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher kudshanu b'mitzvotav V'tzivanu lahadlik ner Shel Hanukkah Amen Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has set us apart by your commandments and commanded us to kindle the lights of Hanukkah. On the first night, we'll light the shamash and use that to light one candle. On the second night, two, and so on, until on the last night, which would have been a week ago, all nine candles are burning brightly. And we put it in the window as a demonstration of the fact that we still believe that God is doing miracles. And so there's another prayer that we say, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam She'asa nisim lavoteinu Bayamim hahem Ba'asman hazeh Amen. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has done wonders in days of old, in the days of our fathers. We still believe in a miracle-working God, and these lights demonstrate that and give us hope to believe that while we might be at a dark time in our lives, the light of God will continue to shine brightly. That's the story of Hanukkah, the festival of lights, the festival of dedication, but it's also the promise of the servant, the Messiah, represented by this candle, Shamash, servant. Isaiah spoke of the servant, the Messiah, who was to come. 
And so whenever you hear that term, the servant, we know we're speaking of the one who has promised the Messiah. And in Isaiah 49 and verse 6, he speaks to the Messiah himself saying, it is too small a thing for you, that is the Messiah, to be my shamash, my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel. In other words, the job that you're going to do, Messiah, is not just for the Jewish people. That's too small. That's too limited. I have I will also make you a or hagoyim, a light to the nations, to the Gentiles. There is a, a, a light that shines so brightly that it can't be contained by a temple in Jerusalem, by a nation, even though they were called on to be a light to the, to the nations, they failed in that effort. And so God poured that greater purpose for Israel into Israel's greatest son, the one who is coming, the Messiah. He said, this is what your job is. You're going to be a light not only to Israel, but to all of the nations, so that... And this is how he ends that verse. Yeshua T, my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. God's eternal promise was that all should be saved. God is willing that none should perish. And so in the Messiah, there's going to be the hope of light to all of the nations. So that, and here's that word, Yeshua T, my salvation. Yeshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus. So in essence, Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus ever was born, said, My Jesus, God's salvation, Jesus is going to reach to the ends of the earth. He is the light of the world. And that's the significance of when Jesus actually came. He said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Shamash points us to the Messiah, Jesus, who was prophesied by Isaiah and who came as a baby in the manger. And without Hanukkah, there wouldn't be no Christmas. But because God is faithful to bring his light, not only to the Jewish people, but to all the nations of the world, that light is still shining brightly today in his church as the gospel is proclaimed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. How I long for my Jewish people when they light the Hanukkah to know that that shamash speaks of the one who was born in a manger 2,000 years ago. That's the story of the light. The miracle of light is followed also as Jesus makes reference to it here by the miracle of preservation. See, God staked his reputation on the perpetuity of the Jewish people. He said, I'm going to bless you and you all the families of the earth will be blessed. He said that to Abraham and he kept his word throughout history. But history is also the record of people like Antiochus Epiphanes trying to destroy them. Because Satan wants to destroy the works of God. And the work of God through the, preserving the Jewish people has been a special target of his. Antiochus, if he had succeeded would have wiped out the Jewish people as a unique people on the face of the earth. The prophecies concerning the Messiah would never have been fulfilled. We wouldn't be having our Christmas celebration here this evening. But because God has been faithful to preserve his people Israel, not just from Antiochus, but from Pharaoh in Egypt, from Haman in the story of the book of Esther, and Herod, who tried to wipe out the Messiah when he was actually born, the Herods and the Hamans and the 
and the Hitlers of history have tried to wipe out the Jewish people in order to make God out to be a liar. But God will not have it. And he has preserved his people. And that's what the story, the backdrop is of what Jesus is saying here when he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Wow, you want to talk about God's preserving power. He put it on the nation of Israel, but he extended it through Jesus to everyone who names his name, who loves him. The same preserving power that has kept Israel through all of history keeps you and me if we put our faith and trust in Jesus. If you hear his voice today and you follow him, it's because you're one of his and no one can snatch you from his hand. You say, well, David, you don't know about me. I've blown it. I've gone out and I, I've confessed Jesus as my savior, but then I've sinned and there's got to become a time when God says, you've done enough sinning. You're done. I'm through with you. No, <laughs> because you see your faith is not what keeps you. It is the power of God that keeps you, the saving power. No one can snatch you out of his hand. Look at what God says to Israel a little bit later in that same passage in Isaiah 49. He asks a question. Can a mother forget her baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Well, that's a good question to ask today. Is there any stronger bond between that of mother and child? That's the strongest bond in human experience, mother and child. Can a woman forget? Well, sadly, sometimes we've seen evidence of the fact that she can. And so Isaiah rightly answers his question. She may forget. Yes, she may. But Israel, I will never forget you. See, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Wow. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's making same reference to that passage saying, yes, God has engraved you on the palms of his hands and they're mine. And pretty soon they're going to be nail-scarred hands. And that engraving is what keeps you and me today as it has kept Israel throughout the years. Hallelujah. We have a miracle here, a miracle of preservation. Don't you ever doubt for one minute that your salvation is at risk. We need to keep on in the following after Jesus, but our salvation is secure because no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand because of the engraved palms of the Messiah Jesus who stretched his arms out on a cruel cross and died for you and me. He shed his blood to pay the penalty for your sin and for mine, but because he is the holy, innocent son of God, death could not hold him and the grave could not keep him and he rose again from the grave and now that same resurrection power, that same preserving power keeps you and me today. Hallelujah. Thank you God for the miracle of preservation. And then there's the third miracle which is the miracle of Emmanuel. Emmanuel is the name that Isaiah gave to the promised one who would come in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Emmanuel. At that time, Israel was facing another Syrian who was trying to wipe them out. And Israel was afraid, just as they were during the time of Antiochus. And God told Isaiah, tell him there's going to be a child who's born. And that child is going to be evidence that you don't have to fear the Syrians. 
Because his name is Emmanuel, which means God is with us. He's going to fight your battles. But you see, that was just the beginning. That was the first glimmer of a prophecy that was to be fulfilled. And Matthew writes of this when he says in Matthew chapter 1 and 22, recounting the birth that we are celebrating this month. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That virgin birth, which has been disputed, nevertheless is an evidence that God does miracles. You know, someone has have argued that the Hebrew word is not literally virgin, and they're right. The Hebrew word ha'alma is the young woman. And yet, in Isaiah's day, it was a young woman of marriageable age, but who was not married. And back then, that's exactly what meant virgin, right? There was another word in the Hebrew, betulah, which could be virgin, but it also is used in the scriptures to refer to widows. And so Isaiah used the most appropriate word when he said ha'alma, the virgin, and when the rabbis who translated the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, came to that verse, they used parthenos, which is virgin in the Greek and nothing else. So we understand that that is exactly what God did. There's a miraculous birth here, but it's not just a miraculous birth that means the Syrians are not going to win in Isaiah's day. It's a miraculous birth because it's not just that God is with us in terms that he's fighting for us, but God himself became flesh and dwelt among us. The miracle of Emmanuel is all about the incarnation. And those who doubt that only have to look and see what the response of the Jewish leaders in the temple was. They picked up stones to stone him. They knew exactly what he was saying. Remember Antiochus, he said, I am God manifest. And the Jews said, no, you're crazy. Now Jesus in that temple is saying the same thing. I and the Father are one. He chose Hanukkah and the temple to say that, don't you think that he knew the import of his words? Jesus never messed around. He never, you know, held back. He was, he was in your face. And that's what he's doing here. He's saying, I am God. I am Emmanuel. Live with it. Think about it. And the Jews picked up stones to stone him. Those Jewish leaders that rejected him, that were not part of his flock, picked up stones to stone him. So I want to ask you guys, where do you keep your pile of stones here at Valley Bible for when heretics get up in the pulpit and speak? You have a pile of stones? Well, I want to assure you that the temple was a much more elaborate sanctuary than we enjoy here. And where was it in the temple? It was in Solomon's colonnade, which was a beautiful gathering place outside of where the priests were ministering, where the scriptures could be taught where people could converse. And there's a story behind all of this that you need to understand. Why the temple? And why Solomon's colonnade? And why Hanukkah did Jesus say, I and the Father are one? Antiochus had been there and said it. And now Jesus is in Solomon's colonnade and he says it. And some people pick up stones. Where was the stone? What were the stones? It goes back to the story of Hanukkah. You remember what I said. 
They extinguish the lights. They set up altars to the Greek gods and goddesses. And they defiled the altar by sacrificing a pig on the altar. And so one of the first things, other than relighting the menorah and the temple, was to reestablish the sacrifices. But you see, that altar was porous stone. And that pig blood soaked into the stone, and they knew they had to make a new altar, which they set out to do. The real question was, what do we do with the old one? So there was debate. Should we just dismantle it and throw it out into the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna? where all the garbage was, where the Canaanites used to offer their children and sacrifice to the gods of the Canaanites? No, we can't do that. We can't just throw out this altar which has been so, so significant. So after much debate, they decided they were going to dismantle the altar and then they would put the stones from the altar in the temple in Solomon's colonnade saying, when the Messiah comes, he'll show us what to do with the stones. What a grand irony it is. And there were some that saw the stones and picked up stones to throw at the one who was about to die on their behalf. But the scripture said, no, he's not going to die by stoning, but on a cross. Cursed is he that hangs upon a tree and Jesus was made a curse so that we could be set free. They picked up stones to stone him. And people are still doing that today. In fact, we have a choice. Jesus doesn't give us the middle ground to be undecided. We bend the knee to pick up stones or we bend the knee in worship. And this Christmas, this world has that choice. Every one of us. Do we hear his voice? Are we part of his flock? Do we follow him, who is the light of the world? The shamash, the servant, in whose hands are engraved the people of God, you and me who trust him? We bend the knee in worship? Or do we cast stones at the one who can save to the uttermost? That's the choice. And I hope that every one of you, in the sound of my voice here, has made the right choice. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Would you stand with me? I want to pray and then pronounce a blessing on you. And the blessing that I'm going to pronounce is in Hebrew. You've heard it before, perhaps. It's from Numbers chapter 6. It's called the Aaronic Benediction. Uh, the sons of Aaron were told, Bless my people with this blessing, and they will be blessed. First in Hebrew, then in English, and then we'll be dismissed. Would you bow your heads, please? Almighty God, we, your people, who have heard your voice and are a part of your sheep, your flock, are entering into this holy season with joy. 
And though the dark clouds are hovering on the horizon, we know who has declared the end from the beginning, and that's you. We know that we are on the side that wins in the end, even though sometimes we feel very much marginalized in the world today. We know, Lord, that you are God with us, and we need not be afraid of what tomorrow brings. And so we come to this holy season celebrating your light, your preserving power, and the fact that you are Emmanuel. And because of that, we need not fear. And we have confidence in our salvation through the shed blood of our Messiah. Yivarechecha Adonai vayishmarecha Yoher Adonai panavalecha vikuneika Isa Adonai panavalecha May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace. Boshem Yeshua, Mishichenu, Sar HaShalom, in the name of Jesus, our Messiah, the Prince of Peace. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.